0: Well, take your copy of God's Word, whether that would be a physical copy or a digital copy, and find Luke chapter 13, would you please? Uh, Luke chapter 13, and our reading this morning begins at verse number 10, and we're going to read down through verse 21. Luke chapter 13, we're continuing in our verse-by-verse study of Luke's gospel here on Sunday mornings, and... We come to the text of Scripture. We are today in verses 10 through 21. Now, he, that is Jesus, was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And behold, there was a woman who had had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her. And immediately she was made straight and she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, There are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, not on the Sabbath day. Then the Lord answered him, You hypocrites! Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? Ought not this woman a daughter of Abraham whom Satan bound for 18 years be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? As he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame and all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. He said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made nest in its branches. And again he said, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leaven." Well, the kingdom of God is a favorite theme in Luke's gospel. We've seen it on many occasions, and here we see it once again. The kingdom of God, when we refer to it as such, we mean by that that this is his rule and reign in the world. That's what the kingdom of God is. His rule and reign in the world. In the world, we can break it down into three aspects that Scripture points out to us. The kingdom of God can refer to His sovereign rule over all things. That is, God is above all the universe, the creator of such, and therefore everything that is existing is a part of His sovereign rule and reign. So the kingdom of God, when we see it in Scripture, can refer to the sovereign rule of God over all things. The kingdom of God can also refer to His spiritual rule. Specifically, his spiritual rule in the hearts and lives of those who believe his gospel. So we have this broad understanding of the kingdom. And then we have this more specific, narrow understanding that the kingdom of God is his spiritual rule in the hearts and lives of those who believe his gospel. The kingdom of God in the scripture can also refer to his literal rule on earth. On that day when Christ returns and begins His physical reign. Now, most often in Scripture, the kingdom of God refers to His spiritual rule. All right? There are portions in which it refers to His sovereign rule. There are portions in which it refers to His literal physical rule. But most of the time in Scripture, the kingdom of God refers to His spiritual rule. And it is through the gospel that God has brought His kingdom to those who believe in and follow Him. So if we're talking about the kingdom of God. I think it's important to ask the question, where is the kingdom of God? Where is it? Well, look around you. It's everywhere in the sense that His kingdom is preeminent above all kingdoms and that He sovereignly rules over all the universe. It's everywhere in that sense. However, the kingdom of God does not belong to everyone. It doesn't belong to everyone. It belongs only to those whose hearts have received Him. So, at this very moment, God's kingdom exists in the hearts of those whom Christ is Lord. And now, as his church, citizens of his kingdom, we are moving forward to the day in which his full and complete kingdom will reign on this earth forever. So, to summarize this, as Christians... We are in the kingdom of God already. The kingdom of God is within us through faith in the gospel of Jesus, and we will be in the kingdom of God forever when Christ comes to complete his full purpose. Now, establishing that understanding of the kingdom is important to seeing how our text fits together. Because there's a conjunction used in verse 18. The word, therefore. He says in verse 18, He said, therefore. Linking the two parables that follow with the previous scene that took place on the Sabbath day in the synagogue. And the point to emphasize is that this healing of a disabled woman is an illustration that Jesus uses to give us insight to his kingdom work. In fact, that's exactly how he ties the two sections together. Verse 18, he said, Therefore, what is the kingdom of God like? Well... It's like what you just saw. It's like what you just experienced in the healing of this disabled woman. And it's from here we dive into the text together. I ask you that same question. What is the kingdom of God like? Well, let me tell you number one. The kingdom of God is filled with broken people for whom Jesus cares. What is the kingdom of God like? It is filled with broken people for whom Jesus cares. Our text in verse 10 begins with Jesus teaching in the synagogue on the Sabbath day. This in and of itself is another wonderful illustration of the priority Jesus put on the necessity of weekly worship gatherings. It's the Sabbath day. And where is Jesus on the Sabbath day, the day of worship? Well, he's in the synagogue, the place of Worship. We learned very early in our study of Luke that it was the custom of Jesus. That is, it was his routine habit to go to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And this particular Sabbath day here in Luke chapter 13 is no exception. He didn't wake up that morning wondering whether or not he would go like many of us do. No, he went. He went. It was the Sabbath. And God had said, this day is to be set aside for the purpose of honoring me. And so to honor God, Jesus is there in the synagogue on the Sabbath day, focusing his attention on the scriptures. It serves us well to be reminded of this every time we come to it in scripture. Their Sabbath day is our Lord's day, and it involves the priority of this gathering each and every week that we enjoy together. Why should I come to church on the Lord's day? Well, I say to you, look no further than the example of Jesus Himself. To truly follow Jesus is to follow Him in the place of worship. We are not following Jesus if we do not find ourselves in the place of worship. You've done well today. Some of you are thinking, well, I feel pretty good. I'm here when He's talking about this. This is wonderful. Well, it is. It is. And I think these little scenes, we don't need to move quickly on from them because it teaches us something. Jesus' example shows us how important this is that we follow his example and come together on the Lord's Day. Oh, in the synagogue, as he's there that Sabbath day, verse 11 tells us there was a woman who had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. So this is a woman who is physically, emotionally, and spiritually broken. That's what he's describing here. She's physically broken. We see that she's emotionally and mentally broken. We see that she's spiritually broken. She appears to have what doctors refer to as a form of Spondylitis, inflammation in the spine that can result in a hunched forward posture. She's bent forward. She cannot physically straighten herself up. And she's been this way for 18 years. 18 years. An elementary school teacher of mine growing up, her husband had a form of spondylitis. Mr. Harrell, he was a man of joy, but he certainly dealt with a great deal of pain. I I can picture him now as he would come on to campus, whether to a ball game or a school function. He had gotten really good in the usage of his canes. He carried two canes, and he would walk like this to balance himself, but if you would talk to him, he would position those canes directly behind him where they would become a place where he would sit, and he would bend backwards like this sit on those canes so he could see you and talk to you. He was so good at that. I was always worried he was going to slip and fall. But these just two simple wooden canes. He'd wrap them around him, lean back on them, and talk to you like this. This form of spondylitis had kept him all the time bent over. He could never, he could never straighten himself up without it being extremely painful and awkward. Well, that's the condition of this woman, and she's been like this for 18 years. There's also a spiritual component to this. Luke, and I remind you that Luke is a medical doctor. It's important to see this. This is why I think he gives us details about these situations. He's a medical doctor, Dr. Luke. And Dr. Luke describes this as a disabling spirit in verse 11. Interesting choice of words. Not just a disabling condition, but a disabling spirit. Now, I believe it to mean that this physical disability that this woman had had a tremendous impact on her emotional and mental well-being also. Not only is she physically disabled, but the physical disablement had affected her emotional and mental well-being. Therefore, her spirit was broken also. She was dealing with a lot mentally, which, of course, can also have an effect on our spiritual well-being. For example, Jesus describes her in verse 16 of this text as one whom Satan had bound. One whom Satan had bound. Now, listen carefully. This is not describing demonic possession. It is more appropriate to understand this as satanic attack. And one example of that is we never see Jesus actually laying hands on anyone possessed by a demon. And we see him here laying hands on her. That's just a side nugget of why this may not be demonic possession. I do not believe that it is. I believe rather this is a satanic attack. And I think that's one of the enemy's greatest plays in his playbook to pile up on those who are already experiencing deep physical and emotional pain. I can attest, I understand that. There have been seasons of my life when Satan has taken, in my opinion, advantage of the suffering that I was already going through to pile up his accusations and assaults on my life spiritually and mentally. So I think it's very important that we see that trifecta here. This is not just physical disablement. This is disablement of spirit, mentally, emotionally, distraught. And we'll talk more about that in a moment. But now we have a spiritual component of it. Satan sees her broken. And he says, hey, I'm going to make things a little worse for her. And he piles on and he piles on and he piles on to the point that Jesus describes her as spiritually broken due to the satanic pressure and attack upon her life. And then add to all of that, church family the social element to this. She's physically broken. She's emotionally broken. She's spiritually broken. And to most, she's become invisible. They don't look her way. They don't speak to her beyond hello. And they certainly don't include her. When they do see her, they simply see her as the broken woman, the disabled woman. The woman has got a lot going on. Now, we must breathe in every phrase of God's word. When you study the Bible, inhale every word, every phrase, every expression, every verse. I mean, to understand all that's taking place, you've got to breathe it all in. For what seems to be at times obscure phrases are in actual fact phrases that are filled with Holy Spirit power. These simple little phrases and stories like this reveal the heart of God and the power of his gospel. So I want you to see this in light of all the brokenness and all the loneliness that we acknowledge about this woman. We then come to a phrase in verse 12. When Jesus saw her. When Jesus saw her. Oh, brothers and sisters, that's powerful. No one else looked her way. No one else gave her hope. No one else included her. I even picture her on that Sabbath morning in the synagogue, sitting over here by herself, hunched over with the pain of brokenness all over her face. And of all, People to see. Whom does Jesus choose to look upon? That broken woman. Jesus saw her. I asked you a question this morning. Do you feel today? an overwhelming sense of brokenness and loneliness. Jesus sees you. Jesus sees you. That's why he came. That's why he wants you to meet him here this morning. He comes to the synagogue. He comes to the house of God so that he can look upon and see broken and invisible people like you. Broken and invisible people like me. In fact, that's the only type of people that his kingdom is made up of. Not people who are perfectly put together and celebrated, but people who are falling apart and are often ignored. Jesus said in Luke chapter 4, in his, one of his first speaking engagements at the synagogue he stood up and if you remember he opened the scriptures of the book of isaiah and he read the scripture which was a prophecy about himself and he said the spirit of god is upon me he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor he has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives he has sent me to set free those who are oppressed that's why i'm here And friends, I want you to know, whatever you are oppressed with and by today, Jesus sees you and he has come to set you free. Whatever sin has entangled your soul with guilt and shame, Jesus sees you and he has come to forgive you and to give you grace and to break this captive of your heart at liberty in Christ. Before I go any further, let me just say this about the woman. Where is she at this moment? Not a trick question. She's in the synagogue. She's in the synagogue. I love that about this story. I know it's so simple, simple, simple observation. Pastor, give us something better, but I just want you to see this. I want you to see this. She's disabled. She's invisible to most of society. I would dare say she's invisible to most of the people in the synagogue. She's mentally, emotionally, physically struggling, and spiritually, she's under brutal attack. She could have stayed away that day. She could have thought to herself, no one else notices me. Why go? People tell me that. Pastor, even in a church like Laurel, sometimes I feel lonely. Nobody speaks to me. Nobody looks to me. Nobody notices me. Nobody comes to me. Why should I go when I can feel that same loneliness and emptiness emptiness and invisibility at home watching it on TV? But what an incredible example. By God's grace, she looked beyond her own brokenness. She looked beyond her loneliness. And she positioned herself under the word of God. The place that she had anchored her hope. And guess what? Jesus saw that. He sees her there. Now the scripture says in verse 12 that when Jesus saw her, he called her over and he said to her, Woman, You are freed from your disability. And then he laid hands on her. And immediately she was made straight. Just picture this. Did did she lean over and look? Did she have canes like my friend, Mr. Harrell? I don't know what the situation is. But whatever it was, Jesus said, Woman, you're freed from this. I'm taking it away. And immediately she Moved that back in a way she hadn't moved it in 18 years. She's straight again. No wonder the very next phrase is, she glorified God. Oh, there's so much here, so much here. But I want you to notice how Jesus took the initiating step in her healing. He made the first move. He made the first move. Get this. This is how much Jesus cares about you. Th- this is how much he sees you today. This is how much he loves you. He made the first move. This is this is massive theological implications. He saw her. She didn't see him necessarily. He saw her. He called her. He said to her. He laid his hands on her. He made her. Her straight. She contributed absolutely nothing to her healing. All she did was respond to the healing by glorifying and praising God for what he had done for her. Friends, that is a picture of salvation. Jesus took the first step, not you. Nobody wakes up and says, I'm going to go find Jesus. If you woke up one one day thinking that, it's because Jesus put that in your heart. He took the first step. He is a sovereign God. Even in our salvation, He chooses us. He seeks us out. He calls us. He reaches forward to us. We do nothing. We contribute nothing. No, no, no. The only thing you and I have contributed to our salvation is the sin that nailed Jesus to the cross. It was the initiating love of God that led Jesus to love us and to include us, to free us, and to heal us by his grace. So to tie this in with the question in verse 18, which is, what is the kingdom of God like? Well, Jesus wants us to know that this is what it's like. This is what it's like. It's filled with broken people for whom Jesus Cares. He chooses to give His kingdom to the foolish, the weak, the low, the despised, those who bring their brokenness to Him. That ought to humble us the first moment we begin to think we are anything, Jesus comes around and says, well, let me just remind you who you are. You're a nobody. Broken. Lonely. And were it not for me, outside the kingdom of God. But he comes to the humble, the weak, the lonely. This is what the kingdom of God is like. This is what the kingdom of God is like. Who are those who are in the kingdom? They are broken people. Broken people. And I'm looking at a room full of people who have broken situations, broken stories, broken circumstances even today. Well, good news. You're who he came from. It is you that he says, I see you. And I want you to come into the kingdom. What is the kingdom of God like? Secondly, it is void of religious legalism that serves as barriers to the gospel. Now, I'll, I'll be honest with you. I don't like how I just phrased that. It's been bugging me all week. I wish I could say it better, but I can't say it better, better and I refuse to use chat GBT. But I want you to at least get the essence of this. The kingdom of God is void. It's absent of. That means what I'm fixing to tell you does not exist in the kingdom of God. That is God's true kingdom. Religious legalism that sets up barriers to the gospel is not a part of his kingdom. Well, let me just say this. There's one in every crowd. <laughs> Unfortunately, there are in some places, places many more than just one. Instead of praising Jesus for what he has done in the life of this woman, there was one who was indignant at Jesus. Not only for what he had done, but for how he had carried it out. Look at it in verse 14. But the ruler of the synagogue was indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath. Now, people like this are all over the place. They're all over the place. You don't have to go looking for them. They find you, ironically. You can especially find them on Twitter. YouTube, they they love hosting their own podcast about this stuff. They, They believe essentially that it is their job to critique every sermon, critique every piece of advice and counsel, to critique every ministry of the gospel and then report it to their followers. This is particularly prevalent among legalistic thinking people as is the case in our text. Because what we have here is the president of the synagogue. They didn't call them pastors of the synagogue. They called them presidents of the synagogue. Here's the president who should, at the very least, be happy that this woman had worked so hard to be there that day. This is the point I was trying to get at a moment ago. I think we who are younger take these efforts for granted. And I only feel like I'm going to get stronger about that the older I get. Because I find things, even at the age of 41, almost 42, incredibly harder than they were 10 years ago. And I can't imagine what some of you, honestly, with some of your ailments and physical limitations and all the battles that you go through, did just to be here today. Just to be here. And I want to commend you for that. Because what the president of the synagogue should have looked at, he should have looked at this woman and say, man, she has got so much that could have kept her away, but look how hard she worked to get here. May God forgive us for looking over those important facts. She did so much to be here today. That's what he should have done. But then he watches Jesus miraculously heal her, And he should be rejoicing in what God had done in his synagogue. But instead, he chooses to turn to the people, not to Jesus. He turns to the people and he tells them that what Jesus had just done was wrong. Because he seemingly broke the Sabbath law in order to do it. I'm going to be honest with you. This is not very spirit-filled thought. People like this drive me absolutely nuts. They drive me nuts. I don't respond to their texts. I don't respond to their emails. I don't follow them on social media. I don't go to their conferences. I ignore it. I ignore it because it is filled with pharisaical legalism. Instead of rejoicing in what God has done and is doing, he's telling everybody else that what Jesus is actually doing is wrong. Because he didn't do it the right way, in his opinion. I, I want you to notice a couple things. First, first, the ruler of the synagogue didn't have enough courage to talk this out with Jesus. Did you notice that? He did what cowards do. He addressed his comments to other people. To other people. Verse 14. He said, that is the ruler of the synagogue... He said these things to the people. Not to Jesus. Not to the one he has a problem with. Not to the one he has concerns over. No, he says these things to others. Hey, look, I'm going to give you a little piece of advice, and this is free. You don't even have, it don't cost you nothing. This is just free. If you've got something to say, at least say it to the people you're criticizing instead of other people. Instead of other people. I'm a firm believer that religious people who are zealous about their man-made rules and their way of thinking, they love talking to others instead of those about whom they're critical. That's the first thing I notice. He's a coward. He's a coward. He, he ignores the one who says it and he decides to text everybody else and tell them what he thinks about it. Coward. The second thing I notice here, and I've already referenced this, is that Jesus didn't break a Sabbath law. He didn't. He broke a man-made rule. You see, their ruler said here in verse 14, notice this, there are six days in which work ought to be done, not on the Sabbath day. Now, stop. That's true. That part's true. That was a part of the command. That was a part of the law. Work six days, rest, worship on the Sabbath, all right? But what's unlawful about the rebuke is that they had in their rules determined what constitutes work and what doesn't. Jesus calls him out on it, even though he wasn't addressing Jesus. Don't you love that? He's turned away from Jesus, telling the crowd about everything this man did wrong, and Jesus is like, "Uh, excuse me a hypocrite, look right here for a second. I got a little something to say to you. That's what he does. He says, you hypocrites, does not each of you, verse 15, do not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to the water? In other words, do you take care of your animals on the Sabbath day? Do you take care of your animals on the Sabbath day? Well, yes, they did. They did. And there was no denying that. So then Jesus says in verse 16, Ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? You care for animals on the Sabbath day. Do you not think this woman should be cared for on the Sabbath day? Jesus is calling them out for things that you and I need to be called out for. That oftentimes our opinions, our preferences, and our rules are both hypocritical and nonsensical. Jesus said, "It don't make any sense. It don't make any sense what you're saying. That it's okay and lawful in the sight of God to take care of your animals, but not a woman who's broken. It doesn't make sense, and it's hypocrisy." It's hypocrisy. Jesus didn't break a Sabbath law. He broke man-made rules. There's a third thing that I see here. Their man-made extra-biblical rules that they actually believe made them more holy were actually preventing people from coming to the grace of the gospel. Look at what he says in verse 14. Come on those days, the other six days, and be healed. Come on those days. Not the Sabbath day. Come on those days. They created barriers. Barriers that many could not get over in order to get to Jesus. These religious rules made by self-righteous people have become a barrier to this woman's freedom in Christ. Much like they are today. You see, brothers and sisters, this was not only hypocritical and unlawful, but Jesus makes it clear the kingdom of God doesn't operate that way. The kingdom of God, the true kingdom, doesn't operate that way. No, the kingdom of God is void of legalism that sets up barriers to the gospel, and that's why Jesus showed up that day to break down their self-righteous barriers. The pour his gospel love on the broken in that assembly that the religious people had set up all rules to keep her away from Jesus. I'm passionate about this, maybe too passionate, but legalism ignores Jesus. Legalism ignores the true needs of people and legalism has no part in the kingdom of God. It ignores Jesus, it ignores the needs of people and it has no part in the kingdom of God. And I just want to help some of you today. Because if you were raised in or came from a church environment where harsh, self-righteous, man-centered, legalistic thinking exists, I want to help you with something. I want to encourage you. That's not, that's not, whatever you were raised in, wherever you came from, that's not what the kingdom of God is like. It's not what the kingdom of God is like. Not according to Jesus. No, no, no. The kingdom of God is ruled by gentle, humble, grace-giving, gospel-providing king who invites broken, weak sinners to come to him. Legalism has no place in the kingdom of God. You want to know what it's like, Jesus said? Let me tell you what it's like. You're not there. And all your antics aren't there. Because anything that establishes a barrier that keeps people out from the gospel work of Jesus is not a representation of my kingdom. Well, again, there's a third aspect of this. What is the kingdom of God like? Let me give you this third and final one. Jesus says, here's what the kingdom of God is like. It's growing. It's growing in small and seemingly insignificant ways. It's growing in small and seemingly insignificant ways. Here's what the word or where the word therefore that we talked about at the beginning comes into the picture. In light of what just happened in the synagogue with the healing of the disabled woman, verse 18, he said, therefore, in light of what you just saw, he said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. And again, he said, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. Two parables. First parable illustrates the kingdom of God like a mustard seed. I have a rare physical illustration this morning. I think it was our last trip to Israel. might have been the one before that. Don. Don bought these. He bought these for me, Don. I think he picked them up somewhere around the Jordan River. Don also bought him a T-shirt that says, I was baptized in the Jordan River. But ask him about that later because it was a little too cold. He decided not to get in. (laughs) But he has the T-shirt. It was awesome. Don, my dear friend, bought some of these for himself, some for me. He knew that this was going to come in the future, and I would need to use this as an illustration. He's also taken some and planted them in his front yard. And what's amazing is, can anybody see that mustard seed? Now, if I, I put like a thousand of them in a jar, you can, but you, you can see that little mustard seed. I mean, if I held it out, I mean, showed it to the people who make all kinds of noise back here on Sunday. <laughs> I mean, you, could, you, can see it, you can see it in my hand, but it blends in. It's so small. In fact, it's, it's about a millimeter in diameter. But, but the significance of that little mustard seed, that little seed, small and seemingly insignificant, most of you would run a vacuum cleaner over it, can produce an oak tree that is up to 10, 12 feet in height. It's amazing when you think of it. Something so small over time can produce something so Significant. That was the purpose of the parable. This is what the kingdom of God is like. It's small. You can barely see it. But over time, it can produce something massive. The, the second parable illustrates the kingdom of God like leaven. I, I don't have any leaven here this morning, but you get the idea. Leaven mixed in... Uh, is the invisible part of the bread, but it expands until it is worked all the way through the entire dough. This is what the kingdom of God is like. It started small. It works in small ways. Even the expansion of God is often invisible to most of the world. Yet, it's growing. It's growing. The gospel is doing its work. Like that little mustard seed, the gospel is doing its work. And let me tell you this morning in whom exactly the gospel is working. It is working in small, broken, sinful, insignificant people. And though it won't be advertised on the evening news tonight, the gospel today is going to accomplish big things. Things throughout the entire world. Like leaven mixed in. It's going to expand. Nobody will recognize it. Nobody will see it. No cameras will be put on it. But it's going to expand and take over the whole world. That's what the kingdom of God is like. Now that encourages me. Because look around. I love you. I love you. You know that, right? I love you. And I think most of you love me. But I'm going to be honest with you. We ain't much. Not in the world's eyes. I don't want to burst your bubble, but the reality is this group right here is a bunch of imperfect, broken, weak, insignificant sinners. We are invisible to most of the world, we're insignificant. Who knows the number of people who drove by 110801 Plaza Road Extension this morning and didn't even look in our direction? They got to their destination. Somebody might say, "Did you come by, by that church on your way there?" What church? I didn't say a church. That's the reality. You think everybody's looking at us? Everybody's watching us? Everybody's ready to celebrate our next achievements for God? I hate to tell you that. That is absolutely not the case. Personally, leading a small church of 300 people can oftentimes feel like we're all alone out here. But then Jesus whispers through passages of scriptures like this. He seems to say, you know, those big, world renowned, mega ministries that prey on the vulnerable, that rob the poor, that abuse the broken. You know those big mega ministries renowned around the world that take the rules of men and make them to be the rules of God? That's not my kingdom. But my kingdom is growing. And my kingdom is growing throughout the world in small, insignificant places like Laurel Baptist Church on Plaza Road Extension a place where most of the world has no idea it exists. Ever stop to wonder, why are you here? I mean, in this place, in this location, what God did to bring you here, it's, it's small. It's so, it's so obscure compared to the world. But this is what his kingdom is like. Something that started so small, In that little country the size of the state of New Jersey, Israel. With a ragtag group of disciples who had more problems than most of us. Small, insignificant, obscure. God takes the mustard seed of his gospel. He plants it in that group of people. And now like leaven throughout the world. It's still not very visible. It's still not celebrated. But boy is it working. That's the kingdom of God. Broken people for whom Jesus cares. Void of religious legalism that zealously sets up barriers to the gospel. But yet growing in small and powerful ways. And that kingdom, that kingdom, it'll never fail. You and I live in a political kingdom that one day will crumble like every other kingdom, but that kingdom, it never will. It only leaves one question. Are you in the kingdom? Acknowledge your brokenness. Kick down those barriers that other people have set in front of you. And understand that Jesus sees you today. Run to Him. Run to Him. And be set free by the gospel. Let's stand together for prayer.